Well, thank you so much, Pastor Dave, for that warm welcome. Glad it was not me in that video this week. My clothes stayed dried all week. Um, but thanks so much for joining us this morning. We are glad that you're here. In fact, if you've just joined us, we're about halfway through our series on the book of Daniel. Uh, the first six chapters, we saw really compelling narratives about Daniel and his life in Babylon. Um, and so this week, in fact, last week we talked about uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den from chapter 6. So we learned what it looked like to be in the den. Now, ironically, today we're going to examine a much lesser known, more obscure passage in Daniel chapter 7. I want to remind you that now we're going to be moving from these compelling narratives into the more challenging prophetic vision sections of Daniel, which are going to encompass the second half of the book. I'd also remind you that up to this point in the book, whenever someone has had a troubling dream, Daniel has been the one interpreting it. But now, Daniel is going to be the one who has a troubling dream, and someone else is going to interpret it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 begins this way. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, for the first time in Daniel, we're taken out of a chronological sequence. This vision actually takes us back in time. We were in Daniel 6 this week, but this vision occurs before that narrative. So Daniel 6 can actually uh, be taking us back in time. It could actually be considered the prequel to Daniel 6. In the first verse, we learn that Daniel has a dream. And later in the chapter, we hear that it alarmed him. Why? Well, as we journey through Daniel 7, we will find out. And so before we begin that journey, I would invite you to pray with me this morning. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you that this is your world, that you have a listening ear, Lord, that you know what we're going through. And Father, you have a view of history, Lord. You know how it began, and you know how it will end. And so, Father, for my friends, for my brothers and sisters that are coming here this morning, Lord, I pray that this word from your servant Daniel, Lord, would would encourage us and not cause us to be fearful, that it would bring comfort and not alarm. Father, help us to have discernment today and help us to leave this place changed, trusting in you more. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday in August, August 5th, and I was reminded that when I was a child, my family would always vacation in Long Beach Island. Has anyone ever been to LBI in here? Yes, it's affectionately called. We would rent a house one block from the beach and spend a week drinking in the sunshine, enjoying one another, and playing miniature golf. Has anyone ever played miniature golf with a very young child? Yes. Well, I was that young child who always wanted to win, and, and if I didn't get a hole-in-one on every hole, I would be the one who called a do-over. Got pretty annoying for my parents. Now, while I love miniature golf, there are two things that stick out in my mind from my time in LBI. First, I loved going to the beach in the morning. That's when the sunshine wasn't as strong for us fair-skinned people. And if you're with me, say amen. Yes. But also, it was when the ocean was, was at low tide. The water was calm and docile, and the waves weren't too frightening. And so you could walk out 100 yards, and you could stand on a, on a sandbar, and the water would still come up to your ankles. It was just beautiful. But in the afternoon, that's when high tide came in. The waves looked more like this. The water rose uh, so high that you couldn't go out 10 feet without having the current pull your legs out from under you and then have a subsequent wave slam you down into the sand. And this is what I would do as a 10-year-old. I would fight the waves. Yeah, 
I would go out, I would stand there on the shore, and I would shout, bring it on! And as the wave was coming towards me, I'd give it a jab and then an uppercut, and then the current would pull out my legs and I'd get slammed to the ground, never to learn my lesson. And so I'd go home and I'd realize that my legs were scratched from the sand, that my back was burnt from the sun, and I would ask myself, why? Why did I allow myself to get beaten up by the rough surf trying to stand my ground? Well, for some of us in here today, life may feel like you're battling the rough surf of the high tides. One wave knocks you down and then you get back up. And then the current pulls your legs out from under you and a wave slams you face first into the sand and then you're covered with sand and you're helpless. In fact, I suspect some of us who pray, there are some of us in here who pray on a regular basis that the end of the world would come and that Jesus would return. Our passage in Daniel 7 today is going to paint an unflattering picture of the sea and what comes out of it. But it also offers great hope for the future. And so, in in fact, it reminds me of a famous song in the 1980s entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It. Okay? It was still popular for a number of years after, even in the mid-90s and beyond. It was written during the time of the Cold War when it was still raging and there was nuclear proliferation on the rise. And the song resonated with many people. Now, if you're really talented in here today and you were a big R.E.M. fan, you probably could recite all the random lyrics of the verses. But what sticks out most in people's mind is the, is the chorus, which simply goes, It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Which seems a very odd way to feel about the end of the world, right? Well, interestingly, lead singer Michael Stipe, who penned the lyrics, claimed that he found inspiration for the dreams, uh, inspiration for the song from dreams he had about the end of the world. And really, given all the chaos that was happening around him during that time, what he wanted to do, he said, was use the words of the song to make people smile, even in the face of catastrophe. Now, it's very interesting to me that a fascination with the end of the world continues to dominate popular culture, and I wonder why is that? Because Hollywood titles frequently take up this topic. I remember even back at the turn of the century, there was movies like Armageddon where Bruce Willis made us cry and he was going up to stop an asteroid or The Day After Tomorrow or Deep Impact where an asteroid hits the Earth or Terminator 2, Judgment Day. In fact, I heard recently Arnold's coming back for another turn. Guy's 70 years old, he's still playing the Terminator. In fact, you may also remember that the world was supposed to end on December 21st, 2012, because the Mayan Empire had predicted that this is when it was going to happen. And if you watch the History Channel, you saw the crazy guy with hair telling us that ancient aliens came and visited the Mayans, and that's how they knew it. Or the world, or a very campy movie entitled 2012 starring John Cusack came out and depicted that every natural disaster, natural disaster was possible to happen at once. Solar flares, giant volcanoes in Wyoming, earthquakes, and people flocked to see this movie. Or if you live through the year 2000, which is when I graduated high school, so this sticks out in my mind, the end of the world was all the rage. Do you remember the Y2K scare? Right? Apparently, every electrical machine was going to turn off because they hadn't accounted for the turn of the century with the computers. And so people stockpiled in their house, maybe this was you, um, and they got all kinds of stuff. In fact, my family got a, a few gallons of water. I think we had six gallons of water for when the world was going to end. And, 
and I'm really, I'm really thankful it didn't come to pass because we would have been in a tough spot. I mean, I don't know why my mother didn't get granola bars. At least, at least we had water, which would have lasted us like two days, but that's how it was. Did anyone else have this experience? Right? Why is it that we're fascinated with the end of the world? Well, we've been calling our series in Daniel when Babylon is home. And the reason for that is that Daniel and his friends were living in exile, far from home, in a foreign land that in many ways has been hostile to them. And so Daniel was thrown in the lion's den for his faith. His friends were thrown in a fiery furnace, all because they trusted in the one true God who then delivered them. But I bet they longed to be out of exile. I bet they had seen enough human evil and corruption living in Babylon that they were ready for God to take them home. They had felt the effects of human sin. And the same is true with us. That we're here today and we may be fascinated with the end of the world. And the reason we're fascinated with the end of the world is precisely because we want it to come. We want it to come because we've had enough of the suffering Enough of the atrocities, enough of the 24-7 cable news telling us how bad the world is and the constant conflicts that can't Jesus come back yesterday. We're tired of getting knocked down by the waves of high tide. And I say all that because Daniel 7, with its prophetic images of the future, is written ultimately to encourage the people of God living in exile. It's written to give us hope, and to remind us that despite everything else, this is our Father's world, and He is still on His throne, no matter what happens. It is written to tell us that in the end, God wins. And so Daniel chapter 7 unfolds in three scenes, which I will call the dream, the throne, and the rider on the clouds. In each scene, we'll learn a truth to cling to as we await the end of the world. Now, to let you know where we're going over the next couple weeks in the breakdown of Daniel, uh, the first six chapters, again, had each had a distinct narrative. The second half of the book is broken down really into four visions. And so Daniel chapter 7, which we look at today, there's a vision of four beasts. Daniel 8, which we'll look at next week, there's a vision of a ram and a goat. Daniel 9 covers the vision of the 70 weeks. And then chapter 10 through 12 is really kind of one vision about suffering and ultimately resurrection of the people of God. But the first scene we'll look at today is what I'll call the Sea of Monsters, and it begins with Daniel's dreams. The first scene is the dream. The dream. And in the dream, we see four beasts rising up out of the sea, each more terrifying than the last. And so here's how it begins. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now imagine you go to bed tonight, and you get this in your head. Images of seas churring up and four crazy giant beasts. In fact, all you need to do is go watch the latest trailer for the upcoming Godzilla movie, and you'll see a picture of what it might look like. It's got that girl from Stranger Things, if you're interested in it. Four beasts rising from the sea. Now, before we get even a description of these beasts, we get some more important information. Remember, in the ancient world, dreams were not about inner struggles. They were thought to be a message from the gods to the people who saw the dream. And while Sigmund Freud may have a different interpretation of this, the sea was a significant image. 
In the ancient Near East, the sea was a symbol of chaos and rebellion against God. It's a place of evil, and evildoers come from it. And so for that reason, the sea was considered a natural place for monsters to dwell. Now, when I mention monsters, some of you may be thinking about the dinosaurs from Jurassic World. In fact, in that movie, a new dinosaur called the Indominus Rex came out. It was a combination of several other dinosaurs that were put together, including one being a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And the animal was certainly terrifying because if you got in its way, it probably would eat you and gobble you up and there'd be blood everywhere. But the dinosaurs in Jurassic World are PG-13. The monsters we encounter in Daniel 7 are R-rated. They are evil and opposed to God. They're, they're more like evil zombies from the most disturbing and chilling horror movies. And I know nobody in here loves horror movies, right? We don't watch those because they give us nightmares. Well, Daniel was watching a horror movie here. And so buckle your seatbelts because we're about to meet the beast. Verse 4, this is the first beast. It says, the first was like a lion that had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. So the first beast looks like a lion, but it also has wings of an eagle. Now the lion, of course, is the gold standard of kingly beasts. But all these beasts we see in chapter 7 are deformed. And so this one doesn't look like a kingly lion at all. It looks like a monster. Now, you may remember back in Daniel chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that Daniel interpreted. Do you remember what that dream was? That's right. It was of a huge statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron and clay. And we discussed that statue and how it represented four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Well, this dream in Daniel chapter 7 is repeating those themes from chapter 2, but this time Daniel's the one dreaming. And so this time, Daniel is the one who needs an interpreter. And if you skip down to verse 17, you will see that after Daniel had this dream, an angel comes and he tells him what it's about. This is what it says in Daniel 7.17. It says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So just like the statue in Daniel 2 Four kingdoms are represented. Each beast represents a kingdom. And you may be asking, are these kingdoms the same as those of Daniel 2? And most scholars agree, yes. The lion with eagle's wings represent Babylon with the head of gold. Its wings plucked off remind us of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. In fact, it's very common for nations to choose animals as symbols. What's the symbol of the United States, the, the animal? Right? The bald eagle. Good Americans in here. Uh, what's the symbol of the United Kingdom? The lion. Yes, I heard that over there. In fact, uh, even schools have mascots. Ridge High School down the road is the Red Devils, which we'll forgive them for that one. But <laughs> you know what's very interesting is that there is a modern-day country that has a mascot with a lion with eagle's wings. Do you know which country that is? Iraq, which is modern-day Babylon. But what about these other monsters? Well, Daniel continues in verse 5. It says, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. The second kingdom is that of Medo-Persia, which succeeded Babylon. Notice it's raised up on one side because it was a combination of two kingdoms, Media and Persia, of which Persia was the stronger kingdom. 
This kingdom conquered other kingdoms with viciousness, just like the Syrian brown bear has a vicious appetite, so this kingdom did. You may remember that Cyrus the Great was the one who conquered Babylon, and even though this vision takes place in chapter 5, soon after King Belshazzar will be slain. See, Daniel's catching a vision of the future here. Then there's a third kingdom in verse 6. As after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. I mean, these things just get crazier and crazier, right? This kingdom is a leopard with wings and four heads. Now, the leopard is not only powerful, but it can move pretty quickly. In fact, I read 36 miles an hour plus, and it even has wings, so it's moving, moving even faster. Now, commentators think that the speed of the leopard symbolizes the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world at unprecedented speed. After he came to power within 10 years, he had crushed the Medo-Persian Empire. By the time he was 32, he had obliterated it and expanded Greece to the borders of India. Now, Alexander died very young, and the kingdom was split into four heads with four different rulers, each one of Alexander's generals. But there's a fourth beast, and it's so ruthless and evil, no man can repre- no animal could represent it. And all Daniel could do was describe how evil it looks in verse 7. It says this, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were looking before it, and it had ten horns. So Daniel says this fourth beast was terrifying and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. This was obviously the kingdom of iron from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in chapter 2, we're told the fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, and it shall crush and shatter everything in its path. Now, as we read this passage, one cannot help but think of the Roman legions marching across the world, shattering and breaking the pieces of the Greek empire as it establishes its dominance. Indeed, the fourth kingdom is Rome which Daniel sees in the distant future. And Rome possessed power and longevity unlike anything the world had ever known. Just watch a couple documentaries about it. Rome was magnificent. Its influence surpassed the other three kingdoms. Rome was also the most terrifying of these empires. And in many ways, it put human evil on display for those in its path, which gets us to the first truth we need to see. Human evil is real and destructive. Human evil is real and destructive. Now, why are these beasts important? Well, perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and you're sailing on a sea of monsters. Your boat is being tossed back and forth by the powerful waves. You're experiencing human evil, and you felt the power of the destruction that humans can bring. Perhaps someone's been cruel to you at school or in your job. Perhaps you've traveled to other countries or the inner cities and seen injustice on display. Perhaps there's a relationship in your life that's been destructive, and you just want to give up because there's so much strife. You know that human evil is real, and it can be destructive. And it's no wonder that some days you cry, Come, Lord Jesus. Why can't the end be tomorrow? Well, the beasts of Daniel 7 point us to that reality, and Daniel's dream doesn't even stop there. 
In fact, there's one more image we can't miss in verse 8. He says this, I consider the horns on that fourth beast. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. It was sort of the fourth beast that it had ten horns. Now, some people have tried to decipher exactly who or what these ten horns represent, even to the point of silliness. Now, because the second half of Daniel is written in apocalyptic literature, it's really difficult to know. I mean, horns symbolize strength, so the kingdoms we know are going to be strong. Ten is the number of fullness, and so we should probably think of the second phase of kingdoms as representing a full number of kingdoms coming out of the Roman Empire. However, we learn in verse 8 that there is a little horn that arises out of the others, which has caused much speculation, and it causes us to ask the question, who is this little horn? Well, I have to tell you, there's not a consensus among the commentators. Some people think that if the fourth beast in this chapter refers to Rome, then the little horn could be a guy named Titus, a Roman general who mocked Israel's holy uh, worship site by, and worship Roman deities at the Jerusalem temple. Other people date Daniel differently, and they think the fourth kingdom is actually Greece, and they separate out Media and Persia. And so this little horn is a man named Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled Greece from 175 to 164 B.C., and he was known to speak against the God of Israel and persecute God's people. And still others think this figure has not been revealed yet that the little horn of Daniel's vision is a future antichrist. Now, while I think it's important to study Scripture and learn more about God and his calling for us as followers of Christ, this really is an area we can't know for certain. My personal position is that this does refer to a future antichrist, particularly because the second half of Daniel 7 seems to indicate that he will be defeated just before the everlasting kingdom is ushered in. However... It can also be said that people like Titus and Antiochus are types of antichrists who foreshadow a future more evil ruler. I mean, there's been numerous evil rulers throughout history. In the 20th century alone, we've seen Hitler, Stalin, Kim Jong-il. Even in our age, believers are being tormented around the world. And so, we should not be surprised that monsters are present among us. Because every human manifestation of evil is a manifestation of the great dragon himself, Satan. And if you look in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul seems to tell us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there's going to be a man of lawlessness in the future who comes up to oppose God and to oppress the saints. And the Apostle John tells us in his letter that there's going to be types of Antichrist who come before the future Antichrist. And in Revelation 13... John paints a picture of a great beast coming out of the sea, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see, Daniel's telling us about a present reality his people faced, but he's also establishing a pattern that's picked up in the future. That human evil was real and destructive. And there's a sea of monsters in the world in Daniel's time, and there will continue to be monsters until the great beast is ultimately judged and defeated. And we catch a glimpse of that in our second scene, the throne, the throne room. So Daniel has this vision, the first couple verses, and then by verse 9, things have changed. He's seen terrifying images of beasts and horns, but this shifts to another scene, a throne room, 
And there, Daniel comes face to face with a figure called the Ancient of Days. Verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. See, Daniel goes from a terrifying beast to a different kind of terror. He saw the amazing might and power of God himself. In fact, this is the central section of Daniel's vision. The thrones are being set up for judgment here. And God himself is sitting on the the central throne as the chief justice of this supreme court. The Ancient of Days is another name for Almighty God, and his hair is white, which is a symbol for purity. And his throne is like a chariot of fire, and the wheels blazed. This is who you want on your side when you're confronting the great beast. Verse 10, it says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. A stream of fire came from him. His army of angels who serve him were streaming from his throne. So many other times in the Bible... People are reluctant to describe God, but here we get a detailed picture of who he is. Why? Because Daniel is giving us a glimpse of the world to come. He's showing us who our God is. And in these two verses, we learn a second truth that we can cling to in the future, that our God is great. Our God is great. He is a great God. Human evil may be real and destructive, but our God is greater. And that's the picture that Daniel is pointing to us here. One day he will come to judge this evil world and will put an end to destruction. This scene shows that to be true. In fact, in the next verse, we learn that the little horn, the one who's opposing God with arrogant words, is judged and killed. And we learn later in the angel's interpretation that this little war has this little horn has been making war against God's people. Listen, verse 21, skip down there. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given to the saints, for the saints to the most of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. See, the little horn is the personification of human evil and destruction. He hates the people of God and what they stand for, and he will make war against us until the Ancient of Days comes in the future and puts an end to his destruction. The Ancient of Days will put an end to this evil earthly kingdom once and for all, and the saints, his people, will rule the kingdom with him. Why? Because our God is great. Now, while I believe each of these beasts represent actual kingdoms, I also believe it shows a pattern for history. And so now thousands of, years, thousands of years later, the Roman Empire is gone. Others have replaced it. And in another few hundred years, should the Lord tarry, the current world powers will be gone because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And we await our possession of the kingdom that will be everlasting where we will rule. Do you know that one day we will rule together with God. You may be sitting here today frustrated by the talk of wars and rumors of wars. 
You're tired of hearing about terrorist attacks and mass shootings and malnourished children and disease. But one day our God will come and make all things right because the beast will be killed, his body will be destroyed, and we will take possession of the everlasting kingdom. You see, today you might feel like you're fighting the waves of high tide. We look at our lives and we look at the world And we can feel the current trying to pull our legs out from under us. We feel the waves crashing down upon us. And each time this happened to me, man, I would go home and I'd take a shower. I would rinse out my swimming trunks because there was sand everywhere, even in my pockets. That's what happens. I put aloe vera on my wounded skin and listened to my family make fun of me for punching waves. Why would you do that? So stupid. And then I would go to bed discouraged. But here's the thing. Every morning I would wake up and low tide would come back. In fact, each night I would long for the next morning when low tide would come. When the waves slammed me into the sand, I would cling to the truth that low tide was coming, that there was hope. And I share that story because for many of us it feels like high tide all the time. In fact, in the future the tide may rise even further. The reality of human evil may become more apparent in our lives. We may be persecuted for our faith, and it may feel like the monsters have won. But in the end, low tide will come because the Ancient of Days will come on his throne of fire to judge and destroy all the beasts, and we will take possession of the everlasting kingdom. And I have to point out that even Daniel and his people were encountering a beast, They were in exile, and it felt, I'm sure, like they were fighting for their lives. They were probably longing for it all to be over. And so while Daniel 7 may seem like a crazy picture of beasts and horns and fiery chariots and all that, it's ultimately a picture about hope. That's why, that's what apocalyptic literature does. In fact, theologian Ian Duguid defines biblical apocalyptic literature this way. Listen, he says, Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is characterized by conflict, and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdom of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery and, listen, has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. So you see, Daniel 7 is not meant to confuse and leave us hopeless. It is meant to tune us into the reality of evil and that evil will one day be defeated because our God is great. And that's good news for for us in the throne room. And for some of us, it makes us more expectant about the end of the world. Indeed, when the everlasting kingdom of God comes, we will sing with Michael Stipe and R.E.M., it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. But there's one more scene we can't miss before we leave Daniel 7, and that is this, the rider on the clouds. The rider on the clouds. So Daniel saw the fourth beast and the little horn. Then he saw the throne room with the Ancient of Days, But his vision doesn't end there. In verse 13, he says this. I saw in the night visions. Catch a pattern. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So the Ancient of Days is not the only character in the judgment scene. It is said that there is one like 
the Son of Man. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's in the scene. He appears to be simply a mortal human being. And yet, to come on the clouds is a clear symbol of divine authority. In the Old Testament, only God rides on the clouds. And even more so, when he's presented presented to the Ancient of Days, look at what he gets. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Did you catch that? That the Son of Man is given dominion and glory. That he is given a kingdom and he is given worship. The kingdom of the four beasts will be overthrown forever, but his kingdom will never be destroyed. What are we to make of this vision? Well, for Daniel, the vision may have been foggy, but for us, it's much more clear. Because 500 years later, the God-man himself would come to earth. And Jesus Christ would start calling himself what? You guessed it, the Son of Man. His favorite title in Mark. In fact, in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, Jesus himself tells us the future. He tells us about the last days, that after a period of great tribulation, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then, and then, they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That after the people of God have battled the beast, the Son of Man will come to the rescue on the clouds with great glory. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that he'll be riding on a horse. He's going to, have a, he's going to gather up his people from the ends of the earth and he's going to defeat the great beast once and for all. In fact, it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The movie, The Two Towers, King Theoden and Aragorn and their army are surrounded at a fortress known as Helm's Deep. It's literally a fortress in the side of a mountain. They think nobody can get in, but then the walls start to break. They're surrounded by these vicious, vile creatures called orcs, ready to come out and kill them and eat them. They're outnumbered. And in a last-ditch effort... What they do is they take a small contingent and they ride out into battle. And when all hope seems lost, they look to the horizon to see the rider on the white horse. The wizard Gandalf, the white, has brought an army with him to vanquish his enemies. And they ride into battle with a blinding light and they defeat them quickly. And friends, this is the picture of our future That the rider on the cloud is Jesus Christ himself coming to slay the beast and the little horn once and for all. In fact, Revelation 14 tells us that he's going to have a sharp sickle to judge his enemies. He's going to come, and then low tide will be here. Peace will reign unendingly. Don't you see, church, that our future, even though it seems hard and difficult right now, Even though we feel acutely uh, consumed by the reality that we're in war, our, our life, in fact, right now may feel like we're surrounded by an army of orcs who are mocking us, rattling their sabers and taunting us. 
We may feel like we're hunkered down in helms deep with no hope. And when that happens, we need to look to the horizon, to the rider on the white horse. Because scripture tells us one day the trumpet will sound, the Lord will descend, and we'll ride out to meet him. And then coming back and defeating our enemies because he is our blessed hope. That he will vanquish our enemies once and for all, and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will come. And we'll sit down and we'll feast with him, and there will be peace forever. And that's the last truth we can cling to as we wait for the end of the world, that God's perfect kingdom will last forever. God's perfect kingdom will last forever. Indeed, it may be the end of the world as we know it, but we will feel fine And we'll feel fine because Jesus has come to make all things right. The perfect kingdom is ours. In fact, look at how Daniel 7 concludes, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve him and obey him. So just as the stone destroyed the statue in Daniel 2, the Son of Man and the saints will defeat the great beast and the little horn. And the kingdom of God will expand to fill the whole earth. Amen. Amen. Human evil may dominate now, but our God is great. And one day he will be with us. And even though it feels like we're fighting the beast right now, one day the end of beasts will come. And you know, you can, you can take a quick look at Daniel 7 and get nightmares. Because the images are pretty frightening. Perhaps that's what Daniel thought at first, but the purpose of Daniel 7 is not to give us nightmares, but to calm our nightmares. While the passage is a picture of a great war between the people of God and the great beast, the ultimate focus of Daniel 7 is the coming day of judgment when the monsters will finally receive justice and God will win the victory. It's not primarily about the beasts, but about the certainty of final victory of the saints, which will last forever. And that's good news, because the end of beasts will come. So what are we called to do now? Well, as we consider the future and the end of the world, I would challenge us not to fixate on dates and times, but to live with confident assurance that in the end, all will be made right. While we're here on earth, we should seek to live out the kingdom ethics of God. Love God. Love people. Help the poor, comfort the afflicted, but point people to the future when there really will be an end to hunger and sickness and point people to the reality that they should not be fearful of beasts. Rather, they should be prepared to meet the one who will come to judge the world. And how how do we prepare people to meet the judge? Well, we introduce them to the one who has taken judgment, the judgment we deserve. That we'll stand before the judge One day, and our sins will be laid bare, and the only thing we'll be able to cling to is the righteousness of Christ. That he was bruised for our transgressions, mauled for our iniquities, so that in the future we will be exalted and reign with him. That he has faced the great beast in our place so that we can receive mercy, because every sin, every sin we've ever committed was laid upon his shoulders. And because of that, you and I are guaranteed possession of a future everlasting kingdom. I want to invite the worship team to come back on the stage. They have one more song for us.
And as the worship team comes, I would remind you that we began this message talking about waves, how I fought them as a kid. And when I was young and ready to take on the world, I would fight the waves and I would punch them. But now I go to the beach and I don't fight the waves anymore. The beach is a calming place for me. In fact, my wife tells me that's where she is, feels the most peace, where she connects with God the most. And maybe that's true for some of you. In fact, a few months ago, we went down and celebrated our anniversary at Ocean Grove, New Jersey. It was an awesome few days of connection and relaxation. In fact, one day I was sitting on the beach admiring the ocean, and I noticed a group of people coming down to the water. Turns out it was a church group who was bringing people down to be baptized in the ocean, which is so cool. I don't know if you've ever seen that. As I watched these people declare their allegiance to Christ, I was reminded that in the future we will reign together as saints in the everlasting kingdom. And then I turned and I looked behind me and I saw this picture. If you've ever been to Ocean Grove, you know there's a great auditorium and there's a huge cross on it. In fact, we were there when they were doing the lighting of the cross for the season. And with baptisms happening just behind me, I looked to the horizon and I thought of two things. Number one, Jesus' first coming, where he died on the cross to pardon my sins. And number two, as I looked beyond that, I saw the clouds in the distance, and I thought of his second coming, when he's going to come in power as the rider on the white horse, the one who will save us all. And I felt incredible peace. And friends, it made me feel, it may feel like high tide is today, but low tide is coming. And even when the world ends, everything will be fine. Amen.